0: That's so rare i mean you know you find it in uh like even deeply religious households you know where you're you know there's almost a repressive religiosity about a house that the kids go the other way you know what i mean they go you know what this is not cool i want certain freedoms and certain things don't make sense and they don't track with my basic logical understanding of the world and you know they can go the other way and you kind of did that with your um, with your, con- your conservative politics going liberal or whatever you are now yeah. yeah
1: you know I think it's I think it's remarkably common um, but I, I also think if you grow up in that kind of milieu it does one benefit of it you know besides uh, the lifelong uh, trauma and regret and self-hatred is uh, you have a better understanding of that viewpoint you can kind of understand where a religious zealot might be coming from you understand the kind of psychosexual stuntation, the constant desire to be engaged in some kind of power struggle the feeling that like you know mainstream society views you as invisible and lesser. And you have to kind of reassert your identity.
0: Oh, that's a really, really good point. I mean, super good point. Um, I I, uh, I think that that's true. I mean that I mean it makes sense now that you've said it. But that that uh, that your kind of granular understanding of a little bit of that attitude is, you know, going to be like much greater than, for example, mine. You know so anyway yeah. mm. well
1: you know we can collaborate and uh and in the spirit of <laughs> compassion and understanding teach each other i'm sure everyone can yeah. recognize you by your mellifluous voice but let me just introduce you here we are welcome rulers we are very happy to be joined by scientist political commentator artisan of conversation and much more importantly all around great guy
0: mark fucking thompson
1: joins hello mark Hello,
0: sir. Wow. Artisan of, what was it? Artisan of? Something. Conversation. Oh my God. I love that. I, I, sheesh. I mean, that might be <laughs> the best introduction I've ever received. Thank you. Oh,
1: wow. Well, uh, that's a, that's a pleasure. I mean, honestly, even before I started podcasting a couple of years ago, I think when I first, first started, when I started the hockey, one, you were one of the first people I ever messaged that I like just knew from their online stuff uh, on like Instagram mm-hmm. and I think, I think you replied back just like, uh, oh yeah, maybe or something. But like, I was, I even just got a little rush that you even replied back. I was like, Mark fucking Thompson just replied back to me, listen to this guy's stuff for like two or three years at least. Right. Um, that's really
0: cool of you, man. Thank you. You're in the
1: radio world. Um, you
0: do, what is it like you're on, you're on air for four hours a day down in LA? No, I'm on air for two hours a day. And it's funny. You just mentioned four hours because you know, one of the things is, uh, and one of the blessings is only being on the air for two hours. And, you know, I've been, uh, they talked to me about, about a four hour shift or, you know, even a three hour shift. And and it's, I have to say that my life is right where I want it with the two hour go. I mean, I, I do think that I, I wish we were on longer because uh, on some days, I mean, uh, because there is so much to talk about and so many important things that, you know, you never get a chance to visit because of the the limited time. On the other hand, uh, you know, when you've been at the party too long, it's a bad feeling and just from the standpoint of a workload, if you want to make your show interesting and dynamic and funny and all those things that they ha- it has to be as a radio show. I mean, that's just easier to do it with a shorter period of time. So, anyway, it's 2 hours, that's a long answer to your your uh, yeah, On, two hours uh, to your question. It's KGO810, right? Right, KGO810, yeah. and you know, in the in the world today, you know, it would be northern and central and even a bit of southern California, it's a huge station in the old days, but now in the world today, you can listen to the, you know, the show anywhere in the world and it's podcasted as well and it's on iHeartRadio and it's on the TuneIn app and KGO has their own app, so, and, and of course it's, it's streamed, kgoradio.com, so you can listen to it, uh, as I say, anywhere.
1: Awesome. And then obviously, you know, in the afternoons, you do, do uh, work with, uh, I believe the organization is called TYT. I mean, I'm not sure. I'm not on Twitter. So I don't understand if uh, everyone <laughs> in the entire world is freaking the fuck out over some kind of internecine personal conflict. Um, but you have kind oh, of yeah. one I mean, foot. There's, a, there's
0: kind of like a rap battle going on. I kind of stick nearer that. There's yeah. A, no, yeah I really, sure. it really feels very East Coast, West Coast rap, rap battle to me. Uh, you know, it reminds me of that. But yeah, TYT, I, I, Jenk uh, is, I think, a, a, a brilliant mind, a, um, uh, a clear thinking, uh, passionate observer of politics. He's not afraid of getting his hands dirty. He's not some armchair. Uh, uh, he's, not, he's not an armchair observer who then goes on and, you know, and rants. He's actually been out there. He, he goes and 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 gets involved in politics of course he actually ran for office i think he learned a lot through that mm. process as well but yeah. uh i'm um and, and he's someone who you know we're talking uh kind of before we went on the air uh, just a bit about you know going from one um, extreme to another uh, politically or even from a religious standpoint or a, a cultural lifestyle standpoint but uh in the case of jank as you're aware he started as a right winger i mean he was you know he came up as a a teenager in his late teens and early twenties, he wanted to be a Howard Stern. You could see that in some of his early work, and that he was all, also this flame throwing right winger. And now he's a flame throwing progressive. And I think uh, I, I respect that he has, you know, I, I'll use this word. It might sound like a hack word, but I respect that he's had an awakening and a realization. And I think he makes a lot of sense. His points track. And I think that's uh, something I always put the, uh, uh, the, I I put my own, I would encourage other listeners to put, I put my own beliefs through that litmus test. Are the points that the person is making, do they track or is this just more a show? And I feel as though Cenk uh, falls into the category of making things track. So I have a lot of respect for him.
1: I mean, I think it cuts to um, something I've been thinking a lot about actually this last week and how we're kind of living in the age of um, really our, our social perception being almost completely dominated by our ability to discern between good faith and bad faith. Like it didn't used to be that 100% of every day you'd have to walk around trying to figure out, okay, well, is this person a good faith actor, bad faith actor? It just seems like that's everything now. Um, on the, you know, I, I think we could both agree that you know, we should at least be open to, as well, the possibility that people's political views are perhaps malleable and slightly fluid and are not a fully locked in thing. But I kind of wanted to springboard from this to the greater conversation, because you're a guy that has experience in both, um, you know, what might be called mainstream media and, and certainly in independent media. I don't know if we mentioned The Edge with Mark Thompson. I love The Edge, The Edge is great. Um, well, thank you, but that's like, sort of
0: a long form conversation like this one, but go ahead. Yeah, yeah.
1: I mean, having that experience, you know, when you look at the kind of atomized, overpersonalized uh, independent media landscape where things like, you know, these beefs and personal criticisms of people can really distract and detract and obfuscate the more important concerns and, and questions. I mean, I've, I've been of the opinion, at least since I started Night Rule, that it's important to figure out a way to create either some kind of substructure or superstructure, you know, whether it's a professional association of some type or or a a podcast union, quote unquote, or say like a unionized podcast system where the listeners are like, actually have voting rights and shit, something that actually ties all these atomized individual efforts together so that they're not uh, just vulnerable to things like personal attacks. They're, They're actually stable, you know, because I really worry that Um, Although it's really awesome to see the success of left-wing media in the last decade, that this current structure uh, really undermines its ability to um, reach a higher level, let's say.
0: That's a really intriguing uh, notion. But before I respond to it, I just want to ask you, uh, when you say that, uh, what do you mean when you say this current structure?
1: I mean... um... Uh, please like and subscribe uh night rule on youtube uh on twitter at pod rule, uh, and patreon.com slash night rule i mean i don't know what i'm talking about it's just it, like literally every single person has their own show you know what i mean right and right. it's like it's great that we have a million shows but are they i mean certainly when it comes to uh more leftist i mean i don't personally identify as a leftist i, I, I always just call myself a bolshevik um, but uh, <laughs> like I want to just storm the Winter Palace and we'll figure it out later okay but um, yeah I think you know uh, for example you know where are the provisions for uh, workplace equity where are the provisions for ethics in general you know is there actually is there something people could sign on to as say like a professional association or something like that where it's like you know what like if you do if, if you do things like sexually harass your staff Um, If you do things like engage in pointless uh, ad hoc attacks on other people within this kind of professional association, for lack of a better term is what I'm just going to call it, that there's consequences for that. You know, you have members actually paying dues into something and actually building a fucking network more so than a collection of competitive efforts.
0: Uh, It's really interesting what you're talking about. On some level, it is out there, as you're aware, It's, it's really out there in the Loose way that podcasts sign on to a podcast network like Media One or um, even uh, Podbean on some level. You know these much better than I do in terms of the obligations that a provider of content has uh, versus the obligations uh, that the network has to them. But I I think that that's mostly based on an economic model, and not the model that you're talking about, which is associated with, I'm sure, on one level an economic model, but also on a model that would uh, require you to conform, at least from the standpoint of the way, as you say, you treat your employees or whatever. Assuming you know, a lot of podcasters are essentially one-man banders. You know what I mean? I mean one man generically, but you know, I just think that they're they're solo artists, and so. there there isn't a, a staff of any kind. You're very lucky if you can you know, if you have a producer or a researcher or whatever but I, um, I, I think that uh, what you're talking about is really intriguing. It's part of a much longer conversation that I'd, I'd love to have with you another time. The only other thing I would say as part of that longer conversation is that in a way what you're seeing now in media in the podcasting world I'm talking about which feels so egalitarian You know, it just feels as though everybody has access. Well, by comparison, by comparison
1: to the fucking Austro-Hungarian empire that just collapsed behind it, you know, it's
0: like, (laughs) okay, (laughs) so, 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 yeah, but the, um, this balkanized world of podcasts is actually being gobbled up in the same way that major media outlets gobbled up the smaller media outlets and as i've mentioned i mean i mentioned a podcast one that just uh, or media you know, media one whatever it's called uh these various um uh um uh, and you know even is it wolfhound or what's the one with how uh, i mean the there's a matter? million
1: i mean there's a billion a million trillion ones yeah uh, this this uh, this one's actually we're on Podbean. bean um, Podbean, okay. So yeah.
0: no, I don't know what Podbean uh, is, except I—that oh, I,
1: makes two of us. I have no idea what it is either. I just give no, no. But and... <laughs> I, mean, I, I, mean,
0: I I don't mean. I, I like its accessibility. Like I'll get served something, and I can get right on Podbean. I don't have to sign up for a lot of stuff or whatever. So I'll say that for Podbean. But beyond that, I don't really understand. I guess what I'm trying to say is there are more and more of these organizations, loosely knit, but with a, a nucleus that are trying to reach out to successful podcasts or just trying to aggregate content and some of them charge you for being on their network, et cetera. In a way, you feel that it's the primordial ooze of what we've now seen on a bigger level in media generally. I guess that's what I'm getting at. And that would be the bigger conversation.
1: I mean, I would wonder if even for solo artists, I mean, speaking as someone that basically produces on their own, because this applies to me, it's like, I would still benefit from Having some kind of association that actually is that I have a collaborative, empowering relationship and I can get feedback. People, you know, you could hold me accountable for things I say on air. You could hold me accountable for things I'm saying on social media. If I have a white supremacist on and I don't sufficiently push back on them, you know, I could be held accountable for that. I think there's 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 benefits to it that I really want to explore. I don't, but we we can, we got a lot of things to talk about. I think actually we'll table it it for
0: the next time. transitioning
1: into another area that I feel really speaks to the um, crisis of being forced to employ one's uh, ability to perceive good faith versus bad faith. I mean, um, the fall of uh, the U.S.-backed government in Afghanistan has been uh, pretty catastrophic. I did my first ever solo up, so I've, I've ranted about it already. But you know, I've been against the war from the start, totally disgusted by it. At the same time. I feel it's, it's only rational and moral to also be disgusted with the, the increase, the, the, the extra kind of unnecessary suffering we're seeing at the end here. I don't know why countries couldn't just buy some fucking plane tickets and get human beings out that wanted to apply for refugee status. But one thing that really surprises me is how, and maybe you agree, maybe you disagree, the mainstream media seems to suddenly give a fuck about Afghanistan again after 20 years of, of carrying water or ignoring it, to be honest, about 99% of the time. And I, I, I feel as though a big part of that is they just are so fucking sick about, sick of uh, reporting on COVID. And this is just such a better story for them that can kind of pretend like they're Vietnam War reporters and they actually are a, a meaningful force in history. Um, what's, what's your view of the kind of mainstream uh, coverage of this? And uh, do you have
0: any other thoughts on the current situation in Afghanistan? Well, your uh, last point is super intriguing, which is that somehow the media, uh, I, I think it's consistent with what we know about the media now, and uh, and I include all media in this case, which is that they're click-driven, they're uh, commercially driven, and it's possible, and very, very possible, I think that's why your point is intriguing, that the COVID story you know, has become less clickable, and we kind of get it. You know, they're vaxxers, anti-vaxxers, they're maskers, anti-maskers. There are different policies going into place. Maybe we'll get boosters. Maybe we won't. Okay. And then it's a bunch of stories that are variations on that theme. All of a sudden, Afghanistan comes along with a compelling drama of people trying to get out of this place. Uh, it's a huge story that the that the war in Afghanistan is ending. It's huge. Uh, so please don't misunderstand me. That's a legitimate story. Oh, but for sure. The, but the idea that the media somehow is playing violins for a group of people that they essentially orphaned from the standpoint of coverage for many, many years. I think that that's also a legit story. I mean, I'm getting this, I made this very point that you've made, I've made it on the air repeatedly. And where were all of you people, I mean, who call my show or text my show or you know now are played out in media, where are all you people? I include George Bush, so concerned about women's rights. But you look the other way on women's rights when it comes to the Middle East, when it comes to your, your pals, the Saudis or the Qataris. I mean, it's just a, there is such a, 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 and this is, I think the deficiency associated with social media also, there's such a rallying cry and everybody goes, yeah, yeah, how about that? I mean, this is wrong. And, and then it has a certain momentum, but now to your question or to your point, the media loves that compelling narrative, and so I think they're led by the narrative as opposed to the complexity of Afghanistan. The reality is that most Americans want to get out of Afghanistan. They want to end the war, and no one could look at the images of the fall of Kabul and, and, and other smaller provinces. Essentially, we're seeing uh, the concentrated images of Kabul now and, and be in any way comfortable with the way it's going. But everybody wanted out of Afghanistan, and nobody had the balls. To get us out i mean obama had the chance i mean there was there was a a gifted opportunity when he got osama bin laden al-qaeda had been taken care of essentially you got osama bin laden spike the football and end it you've said you wanted to get him you got him and i think obama was cowed by the pentagon i think he was cowed by military interests that oftentimes cow presidents and even trump had troubles. to, I say even Trump because he was like you know this big um, yeah, toxic masculinity dude. And, yeah, and he uh, spouted
1: kind of a uh, like faux non-interventionist uh, isolationist policy. Um,
0: yeah, but he but he made he made a bad deal. I mean, uh, you we can argue about whether it's a bad deal or not. I mean, he had well, like, a deal like, with like the nobody Taliban.
1: remembers the deal with the Taliban though. It's like that doesn't exist. I mean, you'll right. see a couple of people bring it up, but it's like our our goldfish brained media landscape and even just on a personal level i mean when you when you have a war of aggression and occupation going on for 20 years in the background of your mind eventually you do fucking become numb to it i'm sorry we all have become numb to it to some extent well but even to the point where two two years ago the fucking american president negotiates and signs a deal with the taliban and everyone's just fucking forgotten it. like two years ago
0: Not even. Right. That's exactly right. I I, I would suggest that one of the reasons, because you mentioned Vietnam, that these wars are different and they they go on in the background is because no one's watching the money. It's not making uh, affecting life because it's borrowed money. Uh, it's making a lot of people rich. Most of that money never even makes it over to Afghanistan. It ends up right in the beltway to military contractors. There's a, you know, it's often talked about the military industrial complex. That's a real thing. The war profiteers, you see them on television now. They dust off those generals. It's disgusting. I went on a rant on KGO about this. It's just that, that you can have all of these people with a vested economic interest in a continuing war, you can have them come on as experts as to what should happen in Afghanistan. It's obscene, absolutely obscene. But to your point about it going on in the background, uh, yeah, there was, there's no draft, there's minimal sacrifice in the American public, it's far away, no one really cares. In Vietnam, you had a draft, it was relevant to everybody. You had these images of war, unvarnished images of war coming back to this country. You just don't have that in Afghanistan. And that's why it went on so long.
1: Absolutely. Um, Another, like, uh, there's there's a conformity to the mental side. Like, people talk about conformity usually in terms of uh, mores and just kind of, like, personal uh, uh, behaviors, but I feel like there's a, a real conformity of mind that uh, has been kind of shockingly underexplored. I think of uh, that bridge they built in London for the Olympics. I don't know if you remember that, but when they opened it up, it was a suspension bridge with this weird design, and, and it started to wobble once people started to walk on it, and the reason it wobbled was because... Um, they basically had not tested it properly to see that like people the the effect of people actually walking on you know left foot right foot left foot right foot and eventually that made it start to sway but as it started to sway everyone on the bridge subconsciously started to kind of correct their movement for the sway so that when you look at the video eventually everyone's walking across the bridge like penguins in lock fucking step and that's only making it sway more and i feel like that's the metaphor for our fucking global society right now when we're we've built a shitty bridge <laughs> we have a bad structure we're walking into it and without even knowing it starting to conform to it in unison to the point where the unison of our conformity is going to either bring the whole fucking thing down or at least let's say hopefully alert us to the problem so we can make different
0: choices well that's a great uh, a great parallel i don't know where the conformity um... Uh, starts and ends on various issues you can i mean how it would be
1: impossible to define i mean it's such a it's such an it's such a kind of ethereal concept
0: um i mean to i mean to totally you know uh i don't want to bum anybody out but no that's what we do here it's fine. the the reality is that we're a species i mean the only species in the history of the planet that fouls its own habitat i mean this is unbelievable what's happening The, the idea that a species could evolve to the point that it literally is destroying the habitat uh, that supports it.
1: Uh, L- it's literally it's destroying it, 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 destroying itself yeah. like with, with something like a war. I mean I, I totally agree with you that you know and it's not depressing to me at all actually to think about humanity on a species level. I hope, hope to eventually have an animal behaviorist who I really am a big fan of on to talk about this but this is something even um, people like Hegel and philosophers like Marx talked about like a species being and when I was first introduced introduced to that concept, I was like, "Wow, what a more holistic and proper way to try and formulate a concept of what what humanity is to think of it as a species and question um the life of you know the members of that species and whether they're being whether it's being fulfilled to the point where they can actually have the fullest flower of their their own personal expression and also community expression. I mean, the fact that we fucking, <laughs> you know, I don't know about you, mark, but like, I'm sure if, you know, Canada invaded America, propped up a puppet government, and then Canada handed you a gun and said, look, Mark, I want you, for me, do me a solid, Uh, I want you to kill this guy with this gun, and then kill the guy behind that and the guy behind that forever and ever, because Canada says so, you know, like...
0: Well, any kind, any kind of occupying force anywhere is never going to uh, succeed long term. The, the local population resents the occupying force. It just happens. That's not to say that, that the Americans didn't have a large constituency of support in Afghanistan, but uh, more to our broader point about the species, I mean, uh, man has been the warring species that we are for a long time. And there are other uh, hostilities within the animal kingdom, you know, over territory and food. And, and resources, you know. But Yeah, but where man, the, you can
1: see that that's where the seeds of this come from, even if it has been kind of, even if it even has metastasized to this kind of cyborg pellscape. Yeah, but continue. Yeah,
0: right, right. No, but when you have the animal behaviorist on, the animal behaviorist should tell you that you don't have the a vengefulness in the animal kingdom. You know, you don't have gratuitous violence in the animal kingdom. You don't have, I mean, we, and the other point is that we should be as, you know, the sapiens, we should be well aware of how to save this place, how to avoid these things that, uh, that confront us from an existential standpoint. And so you would think that, I mean, evolution has favored us in all of these ways, but we can't get out of our own way and our own greed is driving things. I, I know by now people might be, ro- their eyes might be rolling back in their head. Yeah, I've heard it, but it's really true. It's just, it's astounding to me. If you read Jared Diamond's latest collapse or if you read Sapiens, which is a great book, you, you see how blessed we are, if I can, how lucky we are, how just the, the, the things that had to come together to actually give us what we've got. And we are just, uh, pissing on our own pond, for lack of a better way to put it.
1: Um, speaking of uh, depressing topics, I do want to read a quick. Um, <laughs> I want to. I do want to read a quick uh, a note from our sponsor here. I'll just try and get through this as fast as I can. <laughs> Today's episode of Night Nightroll is sponsored in part by S.O.B. School of Business. Do you lack entrepreneurial skills of any kind? Do you fail to grasp basic arithmetic and possess a paralyzing dearth of interpersonal skills? Have you ever wanted? To own your own small business? SOB School of Business is here for you, but don't take my word for it. Let's hear from Jeff, a graduate of SOB. I always wanted to abuse and dominate others, but since the end of the feudal era, I wondered if I'd ever, if I'd ever get the chance. SOB taught me to quell all my human impulses towards compassion, self-awareness, and truth, and I'm now happy to say I'm running a successful multi- multinational enterprise. Thank you, SOB. And uh, let's hear from Betsy. I never felt happy until I had employees to yell at. Thank you, SOB, for showing me that my innate impulse towards compassion was the first bit of my soul that had to be chipped away before I could reach my goals. Not only am I now callous in my professional life, but I'm also now callous towards those (laughs) I know personally. Thank you, SOB. Uh, Please remember to use promo code, you son of a bitch, for 15% off. Uh, and speaking of cruelty, I mean, you know, in the wake of this media coverage, I kind of have honestly just haven't bothered yet to watch, you know, your CNNs and your MSNBCs because I just can't take the fucking, um, again, the sanctimony of people that, that didn't show a fucking ounce of caring for 20 years. It's much more fun to look at the goons on Fox News and, and just like uh, be completely blown away by their levels of uh, insanity and cruelty. I mean, I feel as though we do need to coin a new term though, Mark, and and you're a much bigger media figure than me, so maybe you can get this out there and get people with the water coolers talking about it. I mean, you've heard of virtue signaling, um, but when it comes to the kind of deranged uh, white nationalists uh, or white nationalist adjacent people on Fox News like Tucker Carlson or Laura Ingram, you know, saying how, uh, did you promise these Afghan refugees safety, you know, should we let them in? No, I mean, is this really cruelty
0: signaling? Is that what, is, is, is this the term we oh, need that's to a really, create? That's a real, wow, wow. That's very interesting. There's a, uh, that's all that's just uh, another face on nationalism. That's just a, fa- a face on jingoism. It's not really uh, new, it takes many different forms and that's just the form it takes at this moment in time, I would say.
1: Yeah, I mean, it, to me, it feels even more, um, again, something that's kind of metastasized to cartoonish proportions though. Um, like know, even, I, I,
0: and, and I want to be clear about something. I don't mean to uh, dismiss it. I just am trying to categorize it because I think it really is. It, it falls into that category. But go ahead.
1: I mean, when you, it's interesting though to call it nationalism because it makes me wonder if we need to actually look at things like nation states and interrogate them a little bit when it comes to this stuff. Because you know, we've a lot of our concepts of nationality are well over a hundred years old now. I mean, that was the high age of nationalism, right? And this this concept of nationality and national identity really has de- developed in, in a world that was far different from the one we live in now. I mean, like I, I, I mean, there's definitely. I think, I think it's very unlikely that the U.S. and China will ever go to war, although there is ratcheting tensions. And I think, but I, I think you can't really eliminate the possibility. But at the same time, let's say the you know everything, everything that possibly could go wrong goes wrong, and the U.S. and China declare war on each other. I mean, they're really going to ask you, people like you and me to go and kill Chinese people that we're following, you know, we're following their cousin on TikTok. I mean, like, is that is that well, something that could even
0: happen? <laughs> well, I have, two, I, have two, that's, that, I have two things to say about that. One is maybe I should have said nativism instead of nationalism, because mm. uh, I think that's really what's going on. But more to your point, uh, you know, the old world view of these these wars and these various armed conflicts it just is a stupid way to look at the world i mean china gets it sure they've got the military but they also I mean, understand yeah. that Go their ahead. dominance is eco- their dominance is economic soft power is where is what it's all about
1: Oh, dude, like you have no idea. I like literally have been up until the wee hours this last week because I became obsessed with the Asian Investment Infrastructure Bank website where they just put up the proposals and just like, you know, I've always heard about the Belt and Road Initiative. Why don't I like actually see what they're doing? And if you read their fucking proposals, it's like I'm like, Jesus Christ, why can't Canada get this shit? Like, I mean, I'm not I'm not going to say, you know, uh, you know, giant like the World Bank, for example, is a collaborator on a lot of these projects. The World Bank has a very checkered history, let's say, to put it mildly. But, you know, f- half a billion, $500 million to try and build a more responsive uh, social safety net in India, you know, uh, at least a half dozen to 10 that I that I read of the ones I went through, massive solar generators, you know, um, clean drinking water, fucking uh, gender equity built into uh, provisions for countries in the Middle East. I mean, like, you know, in Canada, we have whole communities just don't have fucking drinking water. Um and again, like, I, I'm not, I'm not, I don't, I'm not a tanky. I'm not, I'm not a uh, apologist for uh, the Chinese government, but I, I really think people like, you know, we spent 20 years saying, oh, we can't nation build. We can't nation build while still kind of trying to do it half acidly. And meanwhile, China is out there fucking like industrializing Asia and beyond, you know,
0: <laughs> that's right. No, I mean, but that, but, that, and, and, you know, this, uh, this serves two purposes. I mean, you can—they're not doing it altruistically. They're doing it because, of course not. yeah, they're reaching out to these. This is a brutal regime in China, absolutely brutal. But they do understand that by improving other nations you now have a line into other nations and a a friend in other nations and uh and a seat at the table way before other nations like the, like america which is all about let's just bomb you into agreeing with us yeah we won't talk bomb to our enemies oh, why would we negotiate yeah.
1: with our enemies oh, i don't know just because that's what's everyone everyone in the human race has done since the beginning of human fucking history like you arrogant pricks
0: like <laughs> this yeah, world no, it's, isn't it's it's yours right, to right. dominate I- you know but but the but the but the media landscape and the, the punditry landscape is littered with people who of the sort that you've uh, you've referred to which you referred which are uh, uh, and that's the nativism that's the you know you don't want to negotiate with anybody who's not your uh, uh, who's not your friend and uh, more to the point no one should live here that wasn't you know that isn't one of us um, these those other people are ruining the American dream I, I'm I'm astounded that that's that that has so much traction but you know the dumbing down of america has been going on for a long time and i think these you know are some of the things that happen after you've dumbed down the population long enough and more and more of the, more and more of the population is disenfranchised economically and in other ways so oh, they don't yeah, feel it as though they have a stake in anything anymore you well know? i mean nobody's been asking
1: them you know what their views on foreign policy um and definitely uh, i think a lot of the anger stems from Uh, A powerlessness and kind of an economic, uh, uh, you know, being economically downtrodden um, and just being like generally psychically kind of depressed and repressed. Um, I know you have a hard out in a little while here, so I want to be mindful of the time. But uh, before you go, I mean, and this ties into the discussion of of China and the solar uh, generators and whatnot. I mean, I think, sadly, in many ways, you're one of the people, I think, uh, most, uh, qualified to speak to the issue of climate change as not only a meteorologist, but someone who's been affected by it to put it really fucking mildly personally, you know, I look at, you know, five, 10 years ago, I could go on the BBC website and they could say, oh, you know, record breaking heat here. And it was just kind of like a nice, cute kind of human interest story. And then I look at this year up here in uh, British Columbia and it was like, oh, you know, uh, Canada breaks heat record. And it's like, okay, that's intense. It was extremely hot in Vancouver at that time. And then a week later, the place where that record was broke, I think Linton was the name of the town, burned to the fucking ground. <laughs> it just got completely yeah, destroyed, yeah. like fucking, you know, Moses made God angry and he was and God decided to send a message type shit. I mean,
0: um, it, you, it, anyway? it is biblical. It is biblical. I mean, it's, it's truly biblical. I mean, you know, the Bible is fiction, but the, those fiction writers, uh, uh, they, you know, they served up various uh, end of the world scenarios and 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 we're living at least uh, what feels like uh you know something on a grand enough scale that you could categorize it as biblical i I, uh i think you're and we've alluded to it in our uh, conversation you're seeing the results of what has been irresponsibility and an absurdity to the way we've lived as a species I, i i really can't believe it i mean you know, the messages associated with, uh, you know, the uh, delicate balance of the ecology and fragile ecosystems, these are not new messages. They've been around for decades. I grew up with them. I actually thought that 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 would be something that we'd see real legitimate uh, progress in. Instead, we overfish, we dump plastics into the ocean, we treat the ocean like an open sewer. It's astounding that anything still lives there. And nothing will live there, uh, very soon. And, you know, when the ocean dies, the entire planet is going to die also. It's a, but, but we just see everything as ours to have dominion over. I believe it's a, it's got its roots in religion. It's got its roots in, uh, almost a mythology that's built up around the power of humanity to both conquer and fix any problem. It's a, um, uh, it's depressing. And, and you're right. I mean, I lost my home to fire. I, uh, I I know what fire can do. We still, when the wind starts blowing, or when the that amber cast is what you see because of, of smoke that has now screened out the sun in many parts of California, when that's what you see, we get chills. I, mean, I really we, of course, we yeah. can't sleep at night. Yeah, oh, I, I can only it's, imagine. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and so I guess what we, what you've alluded to in, in your setup is we don't have the infrastructure we don't have the setup anymore to fight this stuff it's it's really I mean, your your situation what happened in Canada is one that just points up it's when it happens it's just it's blaze and it's all going up and the world is ablaze right now
1: yeah, I mean, it's it's traditional for me to end podcasts on uh, or near the tail end of podcasts and on really depressing notes. So I'm glad we have checked the box. But I will say, <laughs> I take I take at least a modicum of hope that even if you know this this collective monstrosity has has brought us here and kind of continues to you know uh, pra- in practical terms and in kind of psychological and spiritual terms blind us to our crimes, uh, our collective crimes, and, and uh, the need to ameliorate the situation. Um, you know, when when you look at uh, episodes in history, you know, the American Revolution, French Revolution, um, Europe in the shadow of the World Wars kind of finally laying down its arms and saying, you know what, maybe industrialized mass, well, like mass total war is not the way to go. I feel as though humanity at least possibly still has the potential to understand uh, that it needs to change when it's just fucking faced with, uh, you know, uh, an undeniable crisis. You know what I mean? So I'm, I'm hoping that we're going to finally wake up and. The coming months and years here more so.
0: I think you make a great case for just that by pointing to uh, nuclear confrontations or potential confrontations involving weapons of mass destruction so great that there's no walking back from it. Uh, The problem is this has to this point felt a bit like a slow moving train I feel to the and it's very hard for us as a species to respond to that we're just not wired for that I guess and uh and and the idea that you know it's become a political football that that leaves me uh, oh, a bit yeah. on the defensive I blame side. I,
1: yeah. I blame Al Gore so much for that. I mean, that's I think I feel like the, that whole that whole boondoggle politically is something that's, that could like, we could delve into more next time. I mean, I think um, it's interesting because like I don't I feel as though it's important to not uh, like I think I think of Terminator Two, you know, one of my favorite films of all time. And Arnold Schwarzenegger is just like, why do you destroy yourselves? And they're just like, oh, maybe, <laughs> maybe that's, maybe it's just human nature. And I feel as though, because we kind of haven't maybe fully accounted for the fact that we are animals, and, and we can see our, you know, we can see parallels uh, in behaviorally with the animal kingdom, we say, you know, oh, these animals fight for resources. Therefore, you know, we're just, we're always, we're always going to stay these small minded apes fighting over resources. I mean, I feel as though, Outgrowing that is probably much more of, a, of an institutional question and a question of, of society and a question of history. And if we can perhaps f- open our minds a little bit, build better institutions, uh, do a full accounting and have a full reckoning with the, the past, that, uh, that there's at least possibly some hope. One thing we didn't hit though, Mark, before I let you go, I have to say, you know, I made sure I was fully set up for the interview. I brought my rope, uh, my ropes and pulleys, my dynamite. <laughs> My shotgun. Um, you're obviously a you know a very talented uh, vocal artist. You're you're doing a new show right now called Super Heists on CNBC. I, I watched the first episode because I saw they posted it on uh, YouTube as well, and I wanted to ask you: is is it okay to rob a bank if the person whose money you're stealing is uh, Richard Nixon or uh, another analogous political figure? Is that all right?
0: Uh- no, it's, I mean, assuming that you've signed on, uh, well, uh, that's a <laughs> great, it's a great I'm fucking question. I mean, <laughs> yeah, no, no, but I'll tell you what, I, I love, uh, I have to say this, first of all, I love heists and I love um, the blueprints for heists, stories of heists. I love the, uh, so for me, it's a weird thing that this, that this show would come to me. You know, I read a bunch of different commercials as a voiceover artist. I read a bunch of different shows I've narrated, hundreds of hours of shows on uh you know on everything from true tv to uh tlc to fox to nbc to abc etc and yet this show because it's heist related it really excites me you know and uh, there are only six episodes i think so far we hope we get picked up for more but the idea that you know they focus on these super heists all of them a bit different it, it really just uh, it it's the thing that I, I spark to it. So uh, yeah, these, um, <laughs> these questions are, this is funny. I know you kind of meant it as a joke, but it's funny <laughs> because these guys who were involved in this, they become characters in the show, like any, any documentary. And as they are talking the documentary, you're kind of sympathetic to them. You know, you're kind of sympathetic to the, they, they make sometimes the criminal, if you will, a sympathetic figure or somebody you're rooting for, you know? So I think throughout the series, you end up with this odd relationship with those who are running afoul of the law. Now the good news at least or on the other side of that is also you develop a relationship with the cops that bring them down or the investigators that bring them down. And so there's kind of an equal relationship there. So it's a fun show for me, as I say, because I'm so obsessed with heists. I just love that topic.
1: Oh yeah. I mean, it's just, it's inherently fun. I mean, heist, heist stories are going to be fun as, as long as, uh, as long as humanity exists, I think. I mean, you know, um, you can follow Mark at Mark T live on Twitter. Uh, I'm sure that would, that's a, probably the best place to check out uh, more yourself. You're also pretty active on Instagram, I think, right? What's your Instagram, Mark?
0: Yeah, on Instagram, I'm at Mark Thompson TV, at Mark Thompson TV. Uh, what I've done on Instagram is I pretty well, I keep no politics on there. It's all just fun or, you know what I mean? Or Totally. Uh, whatever food whatever I really don't get into politics but um uh like dog and cat adoptions are probably as close to it as I get I even uh, you know I, I care very much about uh, what we do to animals and the animal kingdom and I, I really even soft pedal that which I feel a little guilty about but Twitter I let it all hang out a little bit more yeah,
1: yeah I mean Night Roll is a culture and politics podcast so I fully encourage uh, accepting that you know not only is it really weird to be in politics into politics as much as you and I are but that uh, life does exist outside of it. And that's okay. I'm, pl- I'm planning on recording a solo up, uh, talking about Nicolas Cage, I think tomorrow. Hopefully that'll come out tomorrow. Oh,
0: that's really, good. that's really cool. Um, uh,
1: well, yeah, I've Pig, Pig, it, is, great. Pig is great. Pig is great if you haven't seen it. I highly recommend that. Oh yeah. Um, um, I've
0: heard good things about it. We had a, we, we have a regular film critic on my radio show and he really liked it. So yeah, yeah it's, thank it's you it's for a, reminding me. I'll check it very out.
1: very simple film. I mean, it's, I feel as though, um, you know, it's 90 minutes, which is great. I feel as though it's got a very, very deeply subversive message. Um, that's really not that hard to see, actually. Because, um, you know, but anyways, we'll, we'll talk about that next time. I, it's been such a pleasure and an honor to get to meet you and speak with you. I've been a huge fan for a long time. You're a total prince for doing this. Um, everyone check out Super Heist. Everyone check out Mark's work uh, on Twitter and uh, TYT and on the radio. Uh, you have a great day, my friend, and uh, I'll reach out to you real soon. We'll do this again. Thanks so much. I enjoyed it, man. Back, rulers. We're uh, very pleased to be joined again by Professor Adnan Hussein of Queens University. Hello, Adnan. Welcome back to Night Rule. Thanks for having me back on. It's always a pleasure. For sure. I mean, it's kind of a more somber time. I mean, it's not really a Night Rule uh, tone these days. We've got a lot of really tragic and depressing and heartbreaking stuff going on in the world. Um, Obviously, I know we've both been following the events uh, in Afghanistan recently. And I imagine, um, I don't know, it's been it's been a really tough time because I feel like a lot of people were pretty callously disinterested in it. So I felt quite actually lonely um, over the weekend, kind of following it minute by minute. I did hear one thing that I thought was really uh, intelligent on the American Prestige Podcast, which is a great new podcast. And they pointed out that this, thing that you hear people say, you know, Afghanistan is the graveyard of empires. They said, well, yeah, the white empires, but there's been many more empires that have gone through um, and made that area a client. Can you maybe really quickly before we delve into the present day, um, illuminate us on that a little bit, like in terms of, you know, is this actually a Eurocentric formulation to call this country uh, graveyard of empires or has has this, has Afghanistan been part of larger political denominations in the past and and not destroy them
2: um well um i think the i think it's both a eurocentric perspective and um does get at something that is endemic or unique to afghanistan's history As one of unruly resistance to outside political power and authority, like all uh, kind of tribal mountainous regions, they're very, very hard to control Mm -hmm. and to subject to... Uh, state control and authority to tax and to govern um, it's not easy and so there is some truth to this idea um, that generally speaking uh, it was a hard place to govern but i think uh, it really uh, fits into this history of resistance to colonialism so the outside powers that have tried to control it from uh, europe for example have had uh, great difficulty and of course the British um failed uh failed to do so but if you want to think about h- uh, how it fit into previous um kind of Eastern or other Asian polities um you could look for example at uh, Mahmoud of Ghazna who mm-hmm. was a Turkic uh, sovereign um, who established a state um, and dynasty centered in Khorasan, which is the northeastern uh, part of uh, the Persian world. It is this very rich uh, agricultural zone that's supported four major cities, um, if I can remember them, Balch, Marv, um, Nishapur, and uh, Herat. Mm-hmm. Um, Herat, of course, is in um you know in present day Afghanistan and um he managed to establish a polity that integrated at least the northern parts of what is today Afghanistan as uh part of this larger unit you might say of Khorasan and it's as I said a really rich agricultural zone um some one uh historian uh from the university of toronto i remember gave a paper that i heard about Khurasan's history and why it was so influential and important as an incubator of new ideas of new social forms uh, partly because it was this uh, more urban space that could support uh, because of the agricultural richness uh, of the area, it could support these large cities, that advanced culture, and so on. She characterized Khurasan as the California of uh, the Middle East. Oh, wow, know, where, like, interesting. Good ideas get incubated, some kind of out there ideas, but uh, it has an influence that is um, disproportionate to its size in landmass because it was a really intensive uh cultivated location that could support a really large urban population and so yeah. Mahmud of ghazna established um a Hoda, you know an empire or a state based in in khurasan and he used um you know afghanistan um to enter into the subcontinent of india um what does today present day pakistan and parts of, of india and the punjab and so afghanistan was essentially subsumed into his his state and we find that uh, there are other occasions so for example the timurids uh, after timur uh, tamerlane as he's known in in the west um, who in the post-mongol era managed to reunite uh, most of the mongol lands of the Ilkhanate that disappeared in or collapsed in the 1330s by the later part of the 14th century he threw spectacular conquests across Central Asia into the Middle East, Iraq, uh, uh, Iran, and into Anato- even into parts of Anatolia and Syria. Managed to kind of reconstitute the Mongol Ilkhanate under his auspices and authority. And after his death, his inheritors really centered their larger uh, polity. Um, uh around Herat as the capital city and so again Afghanistan was part of the Timurid Empire um and in fact actually the seat and capital of it in the 15th uh in 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 the in the 15th century basically mm. Mm. so there are precedents for it being part of a larger uh polity uh, it didn't always manage to resist uh external powers coming uh in but i think the reason so the question is well what's the reason why and i think one thing um is uh that during this period that i've been describing say from the 11th century to the 15th century is conversion had taken place uh, they were muslim uh, lands and the rulers and conquerors of this area were Muslim sovereigns. And so there was a way of accommodating themselves to um, external rule uh, in in that sense. And I think one of the differences um, with the kind of attempts at colonialism was that the fierce independence already of these mountainous rugged folk in like the Patans um we're going to be able to rally and maybe unite in resistance um through religious identity and cultural identity and the greater differences um Mm. you know Afghanistan is a pretty diverse place there's so many different ethnic and linguistic uh groups you have Tajiks who are Farsi speakers of a kind there's actually the language they speak is Tajik and Tajikistan but uh Persian a version of Persian called Dadi uh was widespread in um today's Afghanistan there are Uzbeks who are a Turkic uh people from Central Asia um you know neighboring Uzbekistan is named after this uh uh Turkic tribal grouping um so there's a you know five or five percent or so who are who are ethnic Uzbeks There are Mm. the Hazara people who are their own ethno-national kind of grouping and they have Mm. their own language and they uh, happen to be Shia. Um, And so really you have a very, very diverse uh, country that is a patchwork of different ethnic and Mm. national orientations with the core being the central sort of core being the Pathan tribes and but the patans are themselves divided between um, with these colonial borders that the british created during their colonial rule are divided between afghanistan and pakistan so the Mm -hmm. northwest frontier province of pakistan is essentially culturally linguistically ethnically uh coterminous with the core part of afghanistan um and so that's part of the reason why there's so much influence um that uh, Pakistan has on Afghanistan and why they're so interested in maintaining some level of control and alliance, uh, in, you know, in Afghanistan is because they have a large Pathan population
1: in the northwest frontier. Mm. I really appreciate that uh, information because I think what's really been lost in a lot of conversations is like we, people, a lot of people behave as though you know there wasn't a, there wasn't any history of Afghanistan before 1978. Um, before the Cold War interference era. You know, obviously the ghouls on the far right say things like, oh, they're stuck in the 6th century. I mean, these are people that Mm -hmm. never realized that there were all kinds of cosmopolitan um, societies in this whole region for centuries. Yes. Um,
2: You know, one of the great, I mean, in terms of Persian painting, it's the Timurid era Persian miniatures that are just so amazing. So if you compare, you know, later Mogul uh painting and of course who established the Mughal empire it was an, you know it was a a member of a of a the timurid it was a timurid prince mm-hmm. uh, who ended up establishing the Mughal empire and so there's a lot of cultural continuities between the Mughal Empire in the in Indian subcontinent and that Persianate culture that they brought in that was established and developed really under the uh, descendants of Timur, who established a dynasty centered in, you know, in um, in uh, in Afghanistan and at the courts of those Timurid rulers, Shahrukh and others, they patronized great art. And so, if you ever look and uh, at Persian painting you would identify persian i mean uh, timurid uh, miniatures as really among you know really the apogee in some sense of sophisticated uh, artistic tradition of illuminated manuscripts um, where mm-hmm. a lot of great sufi literature for example or some of the uh, wonderful persian epics like firdossi's Shahnameh uh from uh, you know an earlier era are um, illustrated in beautiful illuminated uh, manuscripts and are tremendous exquisite works of art Uh, people just have no idea that there was such a high level of culture in this in this region partly because um, you know the taliban were you know of an orientation that really rejected some of these figural arts and so for example the uh buddha uh, statues um the great uh, statues of bamyan uh that were uh uh, carved out of you know rock on this cliff um really an amazing um achievement Uh from uh you know early late antiquity uh um they were just they and and they clearly you know this is the other thing is that uh, people think uh, want to blame islam's uh you know anti-iconic uh approach to art which is a whole controversy on its uh, on its own you know Timurid miniatures that I was just describing are figural art Uh, so that's really not the the issue and it's not something endemic to Islamic uh, attitudes and clearly those Bamiyan statues survived through centuries and centuries of uh, majority Muslim society and of Muslim rulers it was really only at this late period of the 20th century with this fundamentalist movement established by the taliban who um you know had a particular religious interpretation that was very narrow and literalist that the statues were destroyed but that really sticks in people's mind and memories and they associate all of afghan religious culture um, with the taliban um,
1: uh, attitudes Mm. Yeah. And I think, you know, a big part of that is just the kind of media landscape um, and whatnot. I think it's actually, I mean, it's this, the increased suffering, and I would argue very much unnecessary suffering over the last uh, week and a half, um, I think has really laid bare, even, I mean, I, I keep on thinking that we've reached rock bottom in terms of the mainstream media's credibility. But like the fact that I can't even watch the like liberal media, because you know, they didn't fucking care about Afghanistan for 20 years. They just carried water. They obfuscated, you know, they weren't doing, I'm, I go to the BBC and they're doing, you know, human interest stories. Here's an individual who's suffering. It's like, where the fuck was this, mm-hmm. you know, over the last two decades. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm, I'm really beginning to wonder though, if the, the policy and propaganda of humanitarian interventionism over such a long period of time, I, I feel as though like in a, in a sense morality itself has been compromised in that, You know, when you see people running for the airport, I think a lot of people don't know if that's propaganda trying to trick you into thinking we should go and intervene more, or if it's just, you know, human suffering being reported. And I really wonder, like, how we regain a kind of confidence in a humanitarian uh, project.
2: Well, I mean, I think uh, this is a key uh, issue about the entire Afghan war and the way it was legitimized and justified uh, initially. Um, You know, some people wanted vengeance after 9-11 and, um, you know, that was enough. Uh, But others had qualms about... um, you know, intervention. They might have had a somewhat anti imperialist uh, approach in their politics. Um, and it was really liberal humanitarian justifications for intervention that swung uh, some influential, uh, I, I would say, constituencies mm. towards supporting um, the war that lasted 20 years here and really accomplished almost nothing in the end, really. <laughs> Yeah. Um, so it was uh, saving, you know, Afghan women from the uh, abusive oppression of the Taliban uh, movement, for example, that um, helped really justify it and legitimize the, the, the war for yeah. so many people. And we've seen that reflected in the liberal media now with a lot of payans to, um, you know, progress that had been made, women going Mm. to school, girls being educated, and now it's all being destroyed because uh, the Taliban have have moved in and the Afghan government has
1: has fallen. But yet no one was talking
2: about it three weeks ago at all.
1: And and they make it
2: seem as if things were going so well under this. I mean, this was a very corrupt and weak government. It's obvious that it didn't have a lot of popular support in a deep way if it's possible for it to collapse so quickly with um you know within a week essentially uh, most of the major cities being captured hundreds of thousands of the uh afghan national army switching sides or fleeing um, the president uh, who was talking tough for months and months and also refused really to negotiate in any serious way with uh Taliban uh leadership um suddenly just departing and leaving the country you know uh, the morale uh was so low clearly um, Mm -hmm. that it's hard to uh, make sense of media portrayals now um that are offering dirges for you know, a government that was corrupt, weak, ineffective, and collapsed so
1: quickly. It yeah, you know? wasn't providing basic services, you know, soldiers yeah. didn't have food, let alone like bullets. I mean, and I think I, I don't believe for a second that the Taliban are quote unquote popular in Afghanistan. No. But I do think there's probably people in, you know, certain circumstances who looked at the incompetence and corruption of uh, the U.S.-backed regime and the U.S., And actually thought, you know what, maybe the frickin Taliban might actually provide Mm -hmm. basic services better than this. I mean, well, that is going to be interesting to see whether
2: they can approach governance in a slightly more effective way than they did in the mid late 90s, when they did manage to have some initial support at the outset, if only because the feudal warlords had engaged in such internecine uh civil strife and conflict and fighting corruption and abuse of 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 the Afghan population you know the Northern Alliance and other warlords um you know there was so much uh destruction and devastation that Afghanistan had gone through as a result of the Soviet um you know, the Soviet period and the Mujahideen's resistance, mm-hmm. you know, it just tore the country apart. But, you know, even after the withdrawal of the Soviets, uh, the government uh, ended up collapsing. The Afghan government ended up collapsing within a year or two, two years. And mm-hmm. the country descended into civil war where there was no governance, no law and it was so destructive and devastating that people actually welcomed initially the Taliban as bringing at least peace and an end to the war by more or less dominating most of the country now it's true they never at that point controlled all of Afghanistan there still were some parts of the country under the Northern Alliance um you know through the late 90s but the majority of the country was under taliban rule and it put an end to at least some of this conflict and the second point was as ruthless uh, as their justice was they provided some kind of justice it was brutal it was oppressive it was gruesome with these public executions Uh and so on but it did impose a kind of order where there had just been corrupt abuse and taking advantage violent taking advantage of the weak and so that's going to be interesting now they're actually going to control essentially the whole country and I think it's really you know people are exhausted with the war so mm-hmm. and this war has gone on longer than the previous uh period of war yes yeah. yeah. 20 years has made America very unpopular people you know the people are exhausted and so they're probably taking a cautious approach from what i understand i've heard like truck drivers uh, who deal with transport of goods um you know through afghanistan um there was some reporter um, or a scholar who was relaying something that a reporter had um had in an interview with with uh, these truck drivers who said well you know they don't like the taliban but at least when you paid your toll or tax the difference was is that the taliban would give you a receipt so meaning that you paid once okay there was a way to verify okay you've paid the toll or the charge or the tax to move your goods whereas under the previous government i mean every checkpoint those local commanders or groups who control that checkpoint were demanding and taking their cut you know it was corrupt and you could never prove that okay well i've paid the tax it was always well you know everybody had to have their cut of it so we'll see if some kind of ethics of you know just government under you know let's it let's admit it a kind of scenario and set of standards that don't match our own but at least maybe there will be some consistency and there will be some ethical application of the law we'll have to see i mean these are just the hopes that people will have yeah. Um, but you can understand why people are taking a cautious approach and also why there was so little support to maintain and fight for the previous government.
1: Yeah. I mean, I'm not super hopeful. I mean, I think no. once once the evacuation of the yeah. country of, you know, the uh, interpreters, the the U.S. Uh, nationals, et cetera. I mean, I I mean, there's reports of uh, the Taliban going door to door, searching for, you know, former mm-hmm. collaborators, et cetera. But, you know, it's. I just feel as though this whole episode, I mean, it's really weird, right? Like there's all these different, there's kind of a cacophony of perspectives. You know, there's still people that think, you know, the U S had a right to be there. They have a right to be there forever. If they want, there's people who think that, you know, um, it doesn't matter how messy it is right now. We just had to get out. It would have been bad. No matter what, don't think about it. I mean, how, how did you personally, as someone, you know, knowledgeable of the history of the region uh, and, you know, uh, aware of kind of the mores of both uh this culture and that a little bit more than the average person like how did you navigate this these this last week the last 10 days like it must have been like for me it felt really surreal the whole time I was just like is this happening like I don't write to, I still don't kind of understand and I don't think there's a collective understanding of it on any really real level
2: well I mean it's been a doomed venture for a very long time Uh, that should have been obvious uh, some years ago Um, so i guess in some ways it wasn't a surprise it's really just the speed with which it happened that um, the u.s wasn't really able to uh, have even a moment of symbols of having achieved any goals and making a handover to the afghan government and on september 11th and some symbols of having achieved uh you know an end to afghanistan as a haven for terrorist uh groups to um uh you know develop their plans and so on and you know have some kind of symbolic victory they weren't even allowed that um but that's the truth of the situation is that this has been a dismal failure
1: um for a long time i I think the critique of the war was spot on back in 2001 and you know it really applies as much today as ever right
2: exactly i mean and so really it's been spinning wheels uh spending uh trillions of dollars that have disappeared uh you know to aid agencies to corrupt warlords to um you know uh arming uh an army that now has probably handed over all of those weapons to the taliban right that have, they had been yeah. given um and an aircraft air... too they got aircraft which yeah i, I don't know how much here. yeah i don't like know 40 how much... or so yeah okay so yeah you know so that's that's basically those things have just been granted to the taliban as a result of this so i i think where there is room for some criticism is perhaps the manner in which the pullout was organized and announced um announcing an actual date before you had achieved anything other than the us's minimal political goals um Mm. uh but not creating conditions for some uh agreement or negotiations of of political solution between uh the afghan government and the taliban probably you know might have been a mistake from the u.s's perspective but to be honest um I didn't have much hope for the afghan government being able to survive and Mm -hmm. in some ways the speed with which all of those defections took place and local governors handed over authority and surrendered essentially to the taliban or joined the taliban Um, you know probably ended up making um, this a lot less bloody and costly for both sides now we'll have to see how do the taliban govern and will there be reprisals and and so on the leadership that has been stationed um, in uh uh, qatar i believe where they've had some kind of diplomatic engagement with other uh authorities and powers and so on and have engaged in diplomacy and some political uh, aspects of negotiation and so on um, have announced that they you know don't plan these sorts of reprisals. that there will be some sort of amnesty on the ground of course there are the reports that you mentioned that mm. you know local groups it's not clear whether they are following these policies and it is uh, perhaps difficult for the taliban which is a movement now that is very different from what it was in the 1990s and is composed of rather variegated groups that have joined it and uh, also a lot of you know it's been a generation that has passed since that uh, mm-hmm. Movement began in the mid, you know, in the mid '90s, um, and most uh, Afghans, Afghans are among the youngest countries uh, in the world in terms of age of population. So most of the people who are part of the Taliban movement, who are their fighters and so on, grew up in this era and have no memory whatsoever of the Taliban and their ideology from before. So it's, there oh. is a question of how much continuity there has been. Um, you know and it's obviously going to be very difficult for the older leadership that was distant in um, a different country uh to actually have direct control over every uh local commander and so we'll see can they actually discipline their own movement and their forces there are going to be uh factional disputes and differences there are differences uh, ideologically in terms of interest and. Um, temperament and so on the policies that they want to see among taliban groups and we'll see who will actually emerge uh as the ruling stratum Um, Mm. so we will see what what approach they take like you i don't have a lot of hope but there is some sense that the situation and the circumstances are different and the very speed of their conquest you might say of the entire country may put them in a different position of being more willing to make concessions in order to keep the peace that they've achieved than it might have been if they had had to conquer some of these cities where I think if there had been a lot of resistance from for the the population of these cities or the government forces and a bloody kind of conflict Mm. once you achieve victory over such inveterate enemies you know there might have been more massacres
1: reprisals uh, yeah. brutality
2: so we'll you know I, i'm trying to find some it's a good it's
1: some hope yeah it's, it's, a, a it's a good point another friend of mine was saying how he thought it was actually good that the president fled because you know like and honestly other people have made the point like do we really want another like 18 months of civil war is that really right. going to achieve anything right I'm not looking forward to the media coverage, though, because I think I have a theory that they're just so tired of uh, doing coronavirus stories that they're just going to be displaying all this brutality on on our screens for us because they know we'll click on it. And I mean, but to be honest, I
2: wonder, you know, I wonder, you know, politically speaking, obviously, Trump's policy uh, already was. In this direction of negotiating with the taliban of basically paying off taliban commanders uh, and leadership uh, as long as they didn't attack u.s forces um you know it was a sort of uh, pragmatic slash craven <laughs> sort of policy that was as usual kind of bungled because the interests trump had were incredibly narrow and self-serving rather than you know an attempt to find some sort of solution to withdrawing the U.S. from Mm. um, from this situation but leaving you know Afghanistan in a reasonable place or continuing aid see this is the kind of other issue is that now that the U.S. is no longer pretending to uh have a liberal humanitarian justification for it uh, you know for their involvement will they continue to send um aid uh, in Reconstruction um -hmm. some might argue forget it they don't they shouldn't want it and it's best not having it but you know the uh the United States is deeply responsible for the terrible and incredible poverty Mm -hmm. I mean They had 20 years there and this this country is among the poorest in asia you know and it really needs help from the international community but it needs help not of a military kind not at the point of a bayonet you know at the point of a gun which is how this was all introduced into the region but they just genuinely will need um you know support and aid uh, um, and they can't be abandoned on 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 that level um mm-hmm. but uh i think it's wholesome you know to remove these imperial powers uh, that have been engaged in you know attempts at militarily controlling uh
1: this country and oh, absolutely it. absolutely yeah. i think i think it's hopefully hopefully the last chapter in this kind of you know the 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 period of kind of adventurism i would call it mm-hmm. since 911 mm-hmm. um yeah, yeah. I really appreciate you giving a greater perspective. I feel as though it's a good time to maybe try and learn a little more history, not, not because you are a CIA operative and you want to go over there and do bad stuff, but just to appreciate the culture, you know, and yeah. understand the culture for what it is in the spirit of understanding. Yes. Um, yes. And I'm, I'm hoping in, in our subsequent conversations, we can get back to talking about culture a little bit more. Cause it's been yeah. pretty heavy on the politics lately.
2: Yeah, that we we will have to. um, But maybe I'll just if you are, if people are listeners are interested in reading a little bit more, I would recommend Thomas uh, Barfield's Afghanistan, a cultural and political history. Mm. Um, That's a a great resource. If you want to know a little bit more about this country, its history, its culture from a longer perspective, and not just from the prism of the devastation and the terrible uh, war, um, in the, in modern and contemporary times, So it does cover this as well.
1: Mm. Yeah. And just like to kind of bust the misconception of, of the places, you know, being stuck in the past, being this kind of uh, monolithic group, you know, um, because it, it's really important, I think, for people that are at least politically minded who are maybe more focused on domestic politics to at least begin to educate themselves and, and, learn from others so that they're more prepared to kind of push back against the neoliberal imperialism that is probably still going to take a little while to die. I mean, certainly amongst the elites, there's still a pretty strong, uh, you know, uh, affiliate affinity for it. Yes. Yes.
2: There's a lot of hand wringing over this.
1: <laughs> yeah. They're, they're the most upset. It's, uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like, it's so bizarre to me how he could be so brazenly, uh, hypocritical, although I don't really think criticizing people for hypocrisy is necessarily the best thing, the best approach. But again, like nobody fucking cared a month ago, but now they're all talking about Saigon and American prestige and yeah. Blood and treasure. I really hate the blood and treasure (laughs) formulation. It's like uh please. Um I'll give you the final word. Where can people follow your work and uh and check out more of the the wonderful things that you're doing. You have a couple of podcasts you're on as well.
2: Well, first, if you uh, would care to, you can follow me on Twitter at Adnan A. Hussein, H U S A I N. You can also uh, find some of my work at uh, Weekly Marx, at Weekly Marx. Um, so that's a weekly discussion group uh, that I help convene. Um, so I publish a little Twitter uh, summary of that week's reading in Marx or Marxist thinkers. Uh, we've done Fanon, we've done Gramsci, we've read quite a bit of Marx and Engels. Um, and we're now on uh, uh, John Bellamy Foster's Marx's ecology. Uh, so do check mm. that out. And um, as you mentioned, I have two podcasts. So one is guerrilla history, I'm a co host of, and you can find that on all the platforms. And the other uh, is uh, the Mudge-less, Um Can you spell it, that for people? yeah it's it's spelled m-a-j-l-i-s so you can find that at anchor.fm and of course on all the other uh, platforms and that relates to the Middle East Islamic world and Muslim diasporas and given recent events I hope to have uh, a discussion uh, about Afghanistan uh, and its history some aspect uh, of this current situation but putting it into historical perspective So, do listen uh, for that.
1: Yeah, I think everyone will benefit greatly from that, as we always do from uh, your commentary and analysis. And, you know, kindness, courage, compassion, these are all things that we need more of. So, Adnan, it's always a pleasure to speak with you. I know it's Friday. You're probably exhausted after a long week, so I'll let you go. Um, But let's, uh, I'll email you and we'll set up something real soon for the next little while. It's always
2: a joy. Thanks so much for your uh, great podcast and these wonderful conversations.
0: Music nonstop. Techno pop. Technopop.
2: La música ideas portará.